Hi, and welcome back to our podcast, Captivated Audience. My name is Sam Sheen. I'm joined as always by our tax guru at Efficient Frontiers International, Jane Newton. Hi, Jane. How are you doing? Hi there, Sam. I'm fine. Thank you. We were really pleased by the uh, listenership we received on our very first Tax KYC podcast. And I was wondering, Jane, sometimes people have noticed that we are being very, very specific and particular in terms of how we're talking about the topic on the podcast. Before we go into the questions today, can you give people a little bit of context around how it is that you're explaining things? Yeah, of course. Thank you, Sam. So basically what it's what it, what it might sound like is that it's highly scripted. The issue is if we don't do it that way, then basically it sounds it we would go off piste and we could spend hours and hours talking about the complexity of these regulations and in particular how to operationalize them. So I've tried to be fairly specific in my responses in, in terms of the, the questions that you're asking. And people really appreciate that, I know, because it's a tough topic to get your head wrapped around if you're not familiar with tax KYC. So let's build on what we did in the first podcast. And in this episode, we're going to look at some practical examples of some of the challenges and other items that compliance teams might miss in terms of ensuring that tax KYC is accurate and kept up to date. So let's start with our first question. Let's sort of set the scene as a recap from that first podcast. If you're a bank, and you have a customer whose obligation is to declare their tax residency, whose job is it to make sure that takes place? Is it the bank or the customer? And in what format does this information have to be given? Okay, so whilst the bank is obliged to collect the information, it's actually the account holder's responsibility to declare the US status and tax residency information to the bank relating to the beneficial owners of the account. So the information can be collected either separately or together in a self-certification that can be provided in a paper form or by telephone or electronically. But essentially and importantly, the customer has to provide a wet signature or positively affirm that the information they've provided is correct and complete to the best of their knowledge and belief. So in addition, if a customer is opening a financial account to invest in U.S. assets, They'll also need to provide the relevant U.S. Tax Authority W Series form so that the correct amount of U.S. withholding tax is applied. The W Series form can also be collected on paper or electronically, but it must be signed by the customer under penalties of perjury. And it's essential that the bank keeps the evidence and the audit trail of the information collected and to support the reportable status of the account. So what if you have a customer and you've chased them for that self-certification, that W series form, but you've had no joy? For AML KYC, most institutions would not view obtaining a particular document as a deficiency that would justify not onboarding the customer alone. So I have a two-part question for you, Jane. First, do the requirements for tax KYC say that you have to reject that customer if they don't provide that W series form self-certification? And secondly, if the bank decides to onboard the customer and says, well, the relationship manager is going to see the customer next month, uh, he'll get that W series form then, what are the sort of risks that need to be kept in mind here? In the UK, for financial accounts that were opened on or after 1st of January 2016, the tax authority expectation is that the self-certification documentation is collected at account opening. 
So whilst in the UK there's no legislative requirement to halt the opening of the account if the self-certification information isn't provided, banks can choose to include the account in the account terms and conditions, but they won't proceed with account opening unless a valid self-certification is in place. So I've seen that in practice, but usually the decision whether or not to halt the account opening is on a business-by-business -business basis. There's no legislative requirement in the UK. HMRC recognises that it won't be possible in some exceptional circumstances to collect a self-certification at account opening. A 90-day period from account opening is acceptable, but in very limited circumstances. So this means that the bank's processes and procedures need to be in place to collect it at account opening. And HMRC would query the process should the collection of the self-certification be left until, the, say, the relationship manager next sees the customer. This could impact on the bank's risk rating with HMRC and increase their scrutiny of the bank's tax affairs generally, not just the fax CRS processors. So there's potential reputational damage if the bank is portrayed as not taking its responsibility seriously with regards to these initiatives to combat tax evasion. Internationally, and in some jurisdictions, the tax authority may implement domestic legislation that prescribes that the opening of the account can't proceed until the tax residency information is collected, but this isn't yet in the UK. Anecdotally, uh, in France, legislation has been implemented requiring French financial institutions to report unresponsive customers to the French tax authority so that they can fine the bank customers or the financial institution's customers for not responding. It will depend on how successful that is as to whether other jurisdictions might decide to follow suit. Jane, it sounds very similar to AML KYC, whereby institutions have found themselves running afoul of the regulatory requirements where people have used their discretion in terms of the timing at which people collect essential AML. In other words, they realize there's a change to their identity, say they get married or they restructure their entity, that it's not best practice to wait till somebody goes to see them again. So that sounds very similar for tax KYC, if I've heard you correctly. Yes, that's, that's right. And basically, if the customer doesn't respond to requests for information, and, and these rules, there are very complex rules around what do you do for accounts that were opened before the regime was implemented? And what do you do for accounts after the regime has been implemented? You have to make sure that whatever attempts you've made to collect that information from the customer is recorded in your books and records so that you can demonstrate to the tax authorities when asked that you've taken your obligation seriously and tried to collect that information. Taking a step back, one of the things we didn't talk about during the first podcast was some of the terminology used in relation to tax KYC. So we've heard about terms, or at least I have, such as passive entities or eligible entities. And, and let me preface this with, I, I could be getting these wrong because this is not my area of specialization. So can you walk us through what are the key terms when we're talking about tax KYC? Absolutely, Sam. And in terms of the entity self-certifications, they have to classify themselves. But basically, before we go into that amount of detail, I could just say we, we could have a whole hour on classifications and, and what they mean. So what I'm doing here is just trying to provide a taster 
for what the issues are and the risks. So tax authorities globally are concerned about wealthy individuals evading taxes by sheltering themselves behind opaque corporate structures and complex ownership structures. So when the US tax authority, the IRS, was discussing FATCA requirements with industry representatives, they often referred to FATCA as piercing the corporate veil. So a process was devised to filter out the less risky entities from riskier ones. It's complicated to implement, but essentially entity customers, and remember for these purposes, this includes trusts and partnerships, they have to classify themselves based on specific rules that are prescribed in legislation as either a financial entity or a non-financial entity. So when we're referring here in this podcast to non-financial entities, I'm going to shorten that to NFEs. So if the customer is an NFE, they then have to differentiate between an active NFE or a passive NFE. Active NFEs are normally businesses that is making profits from providing goods and or services. So it could be a hairdresser or a plumber or making goods, making talcum powder, what, whatever. It's all relation to, in relation to providing goods and services. Or passive NFEs, so those are largely businesses making profits mostly from investment. So the NFE classification determines how much tax residency information needs to be provided. So that classification is essential to get the clients right. So for an example, an active NFE just provides the tax residency information of the entity itself, whereas a passive NFE must provide the tax residency of the entity plus any beneficial owners that are identified using the AML KYC rules. Okay, so let's say we have a customer who's provided a self-certification in the past. So they've complied with the request to fill in the uh, W-type form. And let's imagine we're in a bank that ruled in the requirements for existing KYC as part of their day-to-day compliance procedures. So they've integrated that requirement along with their AML activities. So it's a bit like the new ZB requirements under the UK's anti-money laundering regulations. Let's imagine someone is doing a scheduled KYC review for AML purposes. They check the customer's file. And in that customer file, they see some emails about the customer planning to liquidate some shares in order to buy a new home in the south of France. So the reviewer notes, well, there's no verification about the new residence on the file and emails the relationship manager and says, look, can you check with the customer that this is home they're planning to use for themselves. In other words, they're not buying it for one of their kids or it's not an investment for some other purpose uh, for business or so forth. So what else should be on this list from a tax perspective? Okay, so in these circumstances, once the position has been established from an AML KYC perspective, if the customer's self-certification doesn't currently include France as their tax residency, then this could give the financial institution reason to doubt the self-certification held. Therefore, the customer should be contacted to ask if their tax residency information that's held is up to date. And whilst it's the customer's responsibility to establish the impact on their tax residency and to either provide a new self-certification or an explanation that the tax residency information already provided is unaffected, it is the financial institution's responsibility to ensure that they do have no reason to doubt the tax residency information held. For instance, on inquiry, this could be a purchase of a holiday home and is not a permanent residence, but it's really important to establish and record the facts to support any reporting decisions that are made. 
So Jane Marie and I recorded a podcast recently for part two of our Swedbank case analysis. We were looking specifically at KYC of complex customer structures. There was a customer in particular referred to as HRC1. We did a deep dive on in terms of the nature of the structure and how the ownership was held. Now, what made this interesting was HRC1 used five different stitchings, which are essentially trust structures. They then used either individuals, and in this case, it was a pool of 21 Russian nationals or legal entities that stood in as if they were the owners but they were merely nominees who then signed declarations of trust, signing back all rights to profits and control back to the stitchting. It was eventually discovered that despite these five stitchings, there were hundreds of legal entities that sat below them. They held about 115 bank accounts, but despite this use of legal entities and these rotation through of Russian nationals, supposedly as the UBOs, it was understood anecdotally that the real beneficial owners were allegedly two Russian oligarchs and a Russian businessman. But part of the challenge identified here was that due to the highly sensitive nature of the businesses these individuals were in, and probably for safety and security reasons, I'm not suggesting anything untoward, up until as late as 2016, KYC for these individuals was held in a safe. So it wasn't necessarily accessible to everyone. When I think about for us AML types, our initial reaction is this whole relationship is problematic because even if people knew the UBOs were Russian, there were all sorts of other people standing in and out. I'm not sure how this would look from a tax perspective. Can we look at at the time that customer's first taken on, what should have happened for tax KYC? And then secondly, as the bank began to realize who were the stand-in versus the real owners, what should have changed from a KYC tax perspective here? Okay, so the bank appetite for tax risk should be agreed with the board, and then effective procedures, controls, and governance structures should be devised to support this and ensure that customers onboarded were within the relevant risk appetite. It's incredibly important that quality assurance is deployed to ensure that procedures are effectively implemented. Now, in this situation, there are tax rules for each of FATCA and CRS relating to pre-existing entity and individual customers and also new to bank entity and individual customers. And it's back to the point, in this case, it's around entity customer classification that drives the level of information required for the beneficial owners of accounts. The tax residency and US status of the natural controlling persons identified for the purposes of AMLKYC are required for passive NFEs. So frankly, if the AMLKYC is wrong and the relevant tax residency information won't be collected, it's interesting to consider these Swedbank failures in the context of new regimes that are emerging. So following revelations from the Panama Papers, there has been increased impetus internationally to improve tax transparency. So both the EU and the OECD began considering how cross-border arrangements and offshore structures are used to avoid and evade tax. The G7 finance ministers asked the OECD to look at ways to address arrangements that circumvent reporting under CRS and the use of non-transparent structures. The EU has introduced DAC 6, which is an amendment to the Directive 2011-16 on mandatory automatic exchange of information in relation to reportable cross-border arrangements. The OECD has also designed model legislation on mandatory disclosure rules, operational framework for mandatory disclosure rules and exchanges, 
When implemented into local legislation, these require intermediaries and relevant taxpayers to identify and report to their local tax authority information on reportable cross-border arrangements that have been entered into by taxpayers which fall within certain hallmarks. So the OECD mandatory disclosure rules regime focuses on offshore arrangements that have the effect of undermining the reporting obligations under the common reporting standard or that are structured such that the beneficial owners cannot be identified. DAC 6 also includes these elements but is much broader to encompass hallmarks to identify potential tax avoidance arrangements. That's a whole new chapter emerging in relation to compliance, Sam. Well, I think, Jane, on that note, we will leave the ending dangling, so to speak, for our next podcast on Tax KYC, where we'll look at some other interesting financial crime cases. If you'd like to provide us with some feedback or join Jane and I to talk about all things Tax KYC, please feel free to reach out on the Efficient Frontiers International page on LinkedIn, or you can also drop an email to Efficient Frontiers International. Thanks again, Jane. It's been an absolute pleasure.